but again, we've been journeying through this questions series, and, and each week, like I said, we've been answering different questions, and so today is no different as we complete our time together in this question series, and, and here's our question that's going to govern our time together today. The question is, is why now? Why now? Have you ever asked yourself that question? When it comes to saying yes to Jesus, when it comes to becoming a Christian, when it comes to coming, him, coming to him in repentance and faith, why now? Why today? Why not wait? What, what's, what's so urgent about coming to Jesus in repentance and faith and receiving that free gift of eternal life? I've even asked myself uh, that same question. Last week I talked about sometimes having doubts about my own salvation and having to go to Jesus with those things. And I asked if anybody else has had those same doubts and none of you raised your hand, okay? And you left me hanging. So, so I'm gonna ask this question this morning and hopefully you won't leave me hanging this time. Even if you don't feel this way, raise your hand anyway so I don't feel alone, okay? Have you ever looked back on that time where you said yes to Jesus and, and you go, why, why did I do it then? Why in that moment? What was the urgency that I felt? And why didn't I just wait? Why didn't I just kind of have all the fun that I could stand? Why didn't I just kind of live a crazy life? Why didn't I do the thing that Paul said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die? Why didn't, why didn't I just kind of do all that stuff and then, kind of once all that stuff was over, then say yes to Jesus. Why did I do it then? Why now? And I think that that question really reveals a bit of a misunderstanding about who Jesus is and what the gospel is. Even when I ask myself that same question, why then, why when I was you know, five years old or six years old, why did I kind of rededicate my life to Jesus when I was 12 or 13, why, why then? And here's the misunderstanding that I think it reveals for us is this, is that Jesus outlined the minimum requirements for getting into heaven when you die. That, that, that really is a, and I capitalize, misunderstanding. It's a misunderstanding that, that this is the mission of Jesus, that he came to this earth to outline the minimum requirements for getting into heaven when you die. Let me illustrate this a little bit, talk about it a little bit, and talk about how it relates to our question this morning, why now? There's a really great theological movie that came out in the mid-70s, and I'm sure that none of you have seen it, but it's called Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Have you seen that film? A great theological film. Some of you who haven't seen it, God bless you. You're far more obedient than I am. I love Monty Python and the Holy Grail. There's a scene at the end of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and the whole movie is about these knights, which, you know, that's... We're using that term pretty loosely, but it's about these knights, uh, the, the knights of the round table, and they're searching for the Holy Grail. And if you remember, there's a scene at the end of the movie where they come to a bridge, and the bridge is the last thing that they need to cross before they get into this castle where the Holy Grail is. And they've been searching, it's been their quest, the entire film to find this Holy Grail. And there is a bridge keeper. Do you remember this? Those of you who've seen the movie, there's a bridge keeper, right, that, 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 that is kind of managing the bridge. And whoever can answer three questions is able to get across the bridge. 
So the first knight comes up to the bridge keeper with fear and trepidation, right? And he's trembling in his boots and he's shaking. And the bridge keeper says to him, you know, you can answer these. He's got a little rhyme. You can, you can get across the bridge if you answer these questions three, right? Whatever it is. And he says, what is your name? And he says, Sir Galahad of Camelot. What is your quest? I seek the Holy Grail. What is your favorite color? Blue. All right, go ahead, pass along. And the guys just pass along. He says, well, that's, that was pretty easy, right? Then the next knight says, well, if that's all the questions are, then, then I'm confident. I, I can do this. I'm just fine. So the next knight comes up to the bridge keeper, and the bridge keeper says, what's your name? And he says, Sir Lancelot of Camelot. And what's your quest? I seek the Holy Grail. And then he asks him something totally obscure that no one would have any idea what the answer to the question is. He asks him, like, you know, who was the bass player for the Doors or something like that? Trick question, by the way. Doors didn't have a bass player. So the guy, didn't, he's not able to answer the question, and they kind of hit the ejector seat, and it tosses him off the bridge. Remember this? And he's unable to cross and get into the castle. Next knight comes up and he says, a bridge keeper says, what's your name? And he says, Arthur, king of the Britons. And he says, what is your quest? And he says, I seek the Holy Grail. And then there's a running gag throughout the whole movie. And it's, remember the airspeed velocity of a swallow? You remember this? And he says, the bridge keeper says, what is the airspeed velocity of a swallow? And Arthur says, is it an African or European swallow? The bridge keeper says, well, I don't know that. And ah, the bridge keeper gets thrown off the bridge. This is, interestingly enough, what we think of our, what we think when we think of ourselves dying and going to heaven. And we kind of think that Jesus came so that we could answer questions three before we got into heaven. We, we picture ourselves as, as dying and, and going to heaven and standing before the pearly gates, you know, where St. Peter is. And St. Peter says, I am the bridge keeper and you must answer these questions three. What is your name? My name is Lucas of Hobbs, New Mexico. What is your quest? I'd really like to get in there. So question three typically shows itself in one of two ways. And the first question that we picture ourselves having to answer as that third question is this, right up here on the screen. Right up here on the screen. Next slide, if you would. There you go. You ever think of yourself this way? This is the third question we think we need to answer. Does the good in my life outweigh the bad? Okay, St. Peter, here's the deal. You're going to play back the movie of my life, and the whole St. Peter standing at the pearly gates thing isn't biblical, by the way, but you're going to play back the movie of my life, and I will be able to demonstrate to you I did more good stuff than bad stuff. And if I can answer that third question, my name is Lucas Cooper of Hobbs, New Mexico. I seek to get in there, and I've done more good stuff than bad stuff. Then St. Peter will let me in. He say, okay, go ahead and cross. Or, or we see the third question this way. Pray a prayer. I, I, at one point in my life, when I was five years old or when I was 13 years old at junior high camp or after my marriage collapsed or when I was uh, struggling with an addiction or I had been coming to church for a little while, and I said at some point, I, I, I would like to pray a prayer to receive Christ, to ask Jesus into my heart, to become a Christian. And yes, there is a prayer that happens to initiate, uh, commence this process of, of the kingdom of God coming 
coming in your life. And we're going to talk about that shortly. But, but this is how we think of that third question. And we're going to, we think that we're going to go to heaven, answer what's your name, what's your quest, and then yes, I pray to prayer. I can answer yes to that question. And so St. Peter is going to let us in to heaven. But remember, this is a misunderstanding that Jesus outlined the minimum requirements for getting into heaven when you die. That's what we think his mission was, and those minimum requirements are, you know, do more good than bad stuff, or pray a prayer to receive Christ at some point in your life, and we think that that's what it is he came to do, but that is not what it is he came to do. And and the question, what did Jesus come to do, I really 100% believe, if we understand with clarity, crystal clarity, what it is that Jesus came to do, then the question, why now, why today, why become a Christian now, will make total sense to us. We'll be able to answer that question on our own. Because if you think that Jesus came to establish a new moral code to teach you how to do good stuff and not do bad stuff, to define what it is to be good and not bad, then you don't need God at all, do you? Because all you have to do is do more good stuff than bad stuff, and then you get into heaven. You can complete your quest. Or if all he came to do was help you understand how to pray a prayer, why not wait until you're 80 or 90? The only dice you roll, if all Christianity is is just praying a prayer, then the only dice you roll is unexpected death. That's the only dice you roll. And most of us will not die unexpectedly. Most of us will know it's coming, whether it's age or disease or something. And so we could wait. We don't have to do it now. We could wait until the end of our life and say, all right, now I've had all my fun. I'm going to give my life to Jesus. And then I'll be able to answer that third question with an affirmation. Yes, I have prayed a prayer and he will let me into heaven. But that is all, again, based on a misunderstanding of what Jesus came to do. So I want us this morning to understand with clarity what it is that Jesus came to do, and I believe that you'll be able to answer that question, why now, when we're done? So let's start here. Doing something a little different this morning. I have Sharpies up here with me. I had them in my pocket beforehand. Somebody said I look like a geek, and my response was, I always look like a geek. It doesn't matter whether Sharpies in my pocket or not. All right, so here's what Jesus came to do. Did you guys hang this upside down? You did. Amazing. Could, it could get dodgy. It's going to be great. Here's what Jesus came to do. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was void and without form. And the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. God created in the beginning a kingdom for himself. He created a kingdom that was defined by human flourishing. He created a kingdom that was defined by his shalom. He created a kingdom that was defined by relationship, both relationship with his creatures, mankind, and relationship between his creatures, man and woman. He created a kingdom that was defined by productive work and, 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 and rewarding work. He created a kingdom that was defined by blessing and defined by joy. 
And within that kingdom, because Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that God made man in his own image, he gave each individual human being a personal kingdom, believe it or not. That's why Genesis 26 and 27 says, let them have what? Dominion over the birds of the sea and the, and the bir birds of the sea, birds of the sky and the fish in the sea. That, that, that was what God meant when he said, let them have dominion. He gave each individual a personal kingdom, a, a realm or a sphere of independent action or control. And those individual kingdoms, those personal kingdoms were meant to work within the context of God's corporate kingdom. There's one way, and there, there's a number of ways, but one way to understand personal kingdoms is a way that John Ortberg and Dallas Willard kind of talk about personal kingdoms. And, and, and so we're going to talk about what it means to have a personal kingdom. Let's say that you're kind of a, a three-part being, and, and the, the inside of your being is your soul. Can you guys over here see it? I'm going to move this. Is that okay? Better? 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 Kurt, sorry about your guitar, man. Your soul represents your core values, represents who you are in the very, the very deepest part of your being. That's your soul. In the ancient world, in the Old Testament, they would have used the word heart, but a lot of times when we talk about heart, we talk too much about emotions, don't we? So we're going to talk about your soul or your will, the very deepest part of who you are, your, your, your values, the things that define you the most. Then, on top of that, we've got what I'm going to call a mind. Let's see, mind. And in the ancient world, uh, the mind included both my thoughts and my actions. So it's not just what I think, but also how, uh, oh, sorry, not my thoughts and my actions, my thoughts and my feelings. So I've got a soul, but I've also got thoughts and I've also got feelings, I've got emotions regarding my, my will and my internal being. And then the last part of who I am is my body, is my body. And these are personal kingdoms. This is my personal kingdom. My soul, my thoughts, my feelings, and my body. This is how God created me. This is how God created original man and original woman, personal kingdoms. And those personal kingdoms, if you add a bunch of them up, becomes a corporate kingdom. When I say corporate kingdom, I don't mean a corporation like Tim Hortons. I mean a combination of personal kingdoms. If you add a bunch of people up, they become a family. If you add a bunch of people up, they become a business. If you add a bunch of people up, they become a government, or they become a nation, or they become a state. And what you get is corporate kingdoms that are, that are uh, the, the amalgamation of personal kingdoms. Unfortunately, mankind rejected God's design for personal kingdom. And they committed what the Bible calls sin. So let's, let's what, what, what should we use to, uh, to represent sin? Let's use an apple, shall we? Uh, an, an apple. Just so you know, uh, the Bible says that Adam and Eve ate, that's my apple. 
um, Adam and Eve ate a fruit. You want to know why uh, that people say it's an apple? Because the Latin word for evil is mali, where we get our word malice from, and the Latin word for apple is malum. It's a little jeopardy for you next time that comes up in jeopardy. Adam and Eve committed sin. They rejected God's kingdom. They hijacked their own personal kingdoms and put them to use for their own good, for their own pleasure. And because of their sin, their personal kingdoms became fractured. This that was once whole, this that was once connected, this that was once all together and one individual became disconnected and it began to go to war with itself. So Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they began to control and manipulate one another. They passed on violence to their children. Pride entered the world for the very first time. They began to blame each other for sin. Oh, it's the woman that you gave to me that made me eat the fruit. Or it's the snake that was in the garden that made me eat the fruit. And what Adam and Eve did was that they initiated what I'm going to call the kingdom of earth. They initiated the kingdom of earth. And you and I, from our very first parents, from Adam and Eve, because we're descendants of them, we have been living in the kingdom of earth and our personal kingdoms are inside who we are. Our identity has been totally and completely fractured and it's gone to war with itself. Our internal being has gone to war with itself because we're living now in the kingdom of earth. Now, some of you might be thinking, how has my internal being gone to war with itself? What does it mean that it's fractured? What does it mean that it's at war with itself? So track with me here. Have you ever made a choice in your soul or in your will or those core deepest held values that we have? Have you ever had a decision or made a decision in there but then your emotions get the best of you? Like you get angry and you act out in anger and violate the decision that you've made in your will. I'm never going to act out in anger against my children and then one day they do something and you act out in anger against your children. See, your mind, your thoughts and your feelings have gone to war with your soul. Or have you ever uh, had something in your body that you needed so badly, it's hijacked your will or your soul, or it's hijacked your thoughts or your feelings. That's called an addiction. That's called a substance abuse problem when your body overrides your thoughts and feelings or your soul. Or have you ever, um, have you ever run into somebody and, and the emotion that you feel is hatred or anger or, or dis, dislike or disgust? but you've gotta put on a pretty face for them. You see how your body and your thoughts and feelings have gone to war with one another? Our individual kingdoms are fractured. Our, our, our body, mind, thoughts, soul have all gone to war with one another. They don't always line up. They don't always stick together. They can argue and disagree sometimes. Have you ever told a lie to make yourself look better? Have you ever held a grudge? Have you ever been betrayed, or have you, have you ever betrayed a friend? Have you ever taken something that wasn't yours? Have you ever had an impure thought? 
Have you ever spent too much or drank too much or eaten too much? Have you ever judged someone when you are surfing Facebook? That's all because your internal kingdom is fractured. It's gone to war with one another. That was a very, very easy list for me to come up with. I'm a pastor, and it was still a very easy list for me to come up with. You know why? Because Amy has done all of those things. In the kingdom of earth, our inner being that was once created whole and in the image of God, in the kingdom of earth, it has gone to war with itself. I want to read for you Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 24. You don't have to turn to your Bibles, just listen to me. It's also up here on the screens. I want you to listen to how Paul describes this internal war that goes on in his identity. He says then, he says this, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do what I want, but I, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, so it is no longer I who do it, but sin dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Do you see it? The desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. The, the, the individual, the personal kingdom, my identity is at war with itself. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I, or if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who did it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, that's my soul, but I see in my members, my thoughts, emotions, and my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Paul is talking about that internal war, that fractured identity that took place or that was initiated when our first parents rejected the kingdom of God that was defined by human flourishing and initiated or inaugurated the kingdom of earth. And you and I have been living in that kingdom for a very, very, very long time. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with Jesus? It has to do with Jesus because Jesus came to restore the kingdom of God. Jesus came to restore the kingdom of God. Jesus came to bring this back. Let's use a, let's use a cross to represent Jesus. How about that? That sound good? This is why I went into preaching and not art, or penmanship, apparently. Um, Jesus came to restore the kingdom of God. I want to demonstrate it for you from the scriptures, and then I want to talk a little bit about it. Matthew 3, verse 1 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. From that time on, Matthew 4, verse 17, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 1, verse 14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Luke 8, 1. Soon afterward, he went through all the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Luke 9, 1. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. 
There are 89 chapters in the four Gospels. If you combine all those chapters together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are 89 of them. The kingdom of God is mentioned 86 times. Almost one per chapter. There is no place in the New Testament where Jesus comes to declare the minimum entrance requirements for heaven. There is no place in the New Testament where Jesus says, you want to become a Christian? Let me lead you through this prayer. There's no place in the New Testament where Jesus says, I've come to establish a new moral code. Acts chapter 28, verse 31, it says, Paul lived in the city two whole years and at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God. The, church, the, the history of the early church, the book of Acts, concludes with those two verses. Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God. Jesus came to restore the kingdom of God. Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of God, to bring in the kingdom of God. So let's rewind. What's the root of the problem here? The root is a fractured personal kingdom, right? So when you add personal kingdoms together, you get fractured governments and you get corrupt governments and you get corrupted families and you get marriages falling apart and you get all those problems. But Jesus didn't come as a politician. He didn't come as an attorney. He didn't come as a leader. He didn't come as a pastor to fix corporate kingdoms. Jesus came as a human being, as a little baby, as a humble servant with a, with a together, whole, personal kingdom, and he came to restore personal kingdoms first. In other words, kingdom restoration begins with complete personal redemption. Jesus came to restore the kingdom of God, and that restoration process begins with complete personal redemption. And when I say complete personal redemption, I don't simply mean the soul. You'll hear people say sometimes that, that uh, God came to save souls, that, or Jesus came to save souls. That's not a biblical concept if you understand the soul to be a disembodied consciousness. God created this all together. He, in turn, he, he intended that to be all together. So when Jesus came, he intended to restore all of those things, soul, thoughts, feelings, mind, and body, a complete personal redemption. So much so that in John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is complete personal redemption. Jesus talks about it as a rebirth. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is, say that with me, born again. Say it again. Born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus came to restore the kingdom of God, and that restoration process begins with complete personal redemption. One more picture, one more analogy, and then we'll conclude. Have you seen, have you, we're talking about another movie. Have you seen The Lion King? I love The Lion King. Like, you're at the beginning of The Lion King, Mufasa is in power, like he, Mufasa the lion, and, and he has the whole kingdom, and he takes, what's his little boy's name, Simba? Yeah, and he takes him up on the rock, and he says, look, as far as your eye can see, and like, the kingdom is perfect, right? in the beginning of that movie. The kingdom is perfect. Everything's flourishing, everything's blooming, everything's growing. Like it's so perfect that there's monkeys like painting stuff on walls. I mean, it's amazing. And, and like, you know, pigs and, 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 and 
you know, lions are, are drinking out of the same water. And every, everybody, pigs, pigs, really? Pigs? No. Everybody's doing great. The kingdom is flourishing. But there's a moment in the movie where Scar, this kind of evil brother of Mufasa, initiates his kingdom. And he ousts Simba and kills Mufasa. And the kingdom just goes down the tubes, doesn't it? Kingdom just goes down the tubes. So the next thing you know, fast forward, Simba's out in the middle of nowhere singing Hakuna Matata with, you know, some whatever, like little weasel or whatever the thing is. And Scar is in total control of the kingdom. And because he's hijacked it, because he's put it to use for himself, the thing collapses and there's nothing left. It becomes desolate. It becomes dry. It becomes arid. Nothing is flourishing. No one's happy. It's like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. It's bad, bad news. But then Simba shows back up again, doesn't he? Simba shows back up again, and he ousts Scar, kills Scar, declares victory, and declares for himself, now I'm the rightful king, and we're going to restore this thing back to how it was originally designed. Remember, Simba doesn't come with a new kingdom or a new idea. He's like, hey, it was perfect when my dad was in control. Let's just restore it back to that thing. Now, look, I know that that analogy falls apart a little bit because Mufasa gets killed at the beginning of the movie. God doesn't get killed at the beginning of the Bible. That's not how it works. The, the analogy is this. The kingdom of God was perfect. A rebel force entered into the picture and initiated a whole different kingdom, and we've been living in that kingdom for a very long time. So when, when Jesus shows up, in this case Simba, when he shows up, he says, hey, no more of this stuff anymore. And for those of you who have been living under Scar's control, living under this desolate wasteland kingdom marked by fractured identities and fractured personal kingdoms, fractured corporate kingdoms, and nobody's happy and nobody's doing well, and everybody's trying to you know, one-up the other person and get on top of the other person and whatever else, no more of that. And to be honest, I could just kind of eat you all. I'm a lion. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, I would like to invite you now to participate with me in the restoration of the kingdom of God. My invitation to you is to participate in the restoration of the kingdom of God. We're going back here where things were perfect, where things were marked by blessing and shalom, where, where, where identities weren't fractured anymore, where there wasn't conflict in and of ourselves. We're going back there. So what happens is, in Matthew 5 and 6, when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, if you see the gospel as three questions to answer when you die, what's your name, what's your quest, and have you done more good than bad, then you understand the Sermon on the Mount is a new moral code. Jesus just came to establish a new moral code. He's saying, hey, look, do this and don't do this, and here's how you avoid bad stuff, and here's how you do good stuff. But if you understand that Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of God and restore the kingdom of God, what you understand the Sermon on the Mount to be is just kingdom values. This is what's valuable in the kingdom. Those who, those who are contrite and poor in spirit. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. I've come to restore the kingdom. I've come to bring back the kingdom. Jesus started that process 2,000 years ago, and one day he will complete it when he comes back as king. This is my crown. You like it? 
It's not there yet. That's it. Again, this is why I didn't go into art. Jesus began his kingdom restoration process here, and he will finish it here. This is why theologians use this terminology already and not yet. The kingdom has already been initiated. The kingdom restoration process has already been started. The enemy, Scar, has already been defeated, and now we're just watching stuff grow back. Christians, I, I want to just talk to you really quickly, and then uh, those of you who, who don't know Jesus, I want to talk to you really quickly too. Sometimes, Christians, we can get in this mindset that because Jesus came to establish a new moral code, which again is a misunderstanding, then my job as a Christian is to live out that moral code. That's not true. Jesus came to inaugurate a kingdom. And so your job and my job is to live out the Lord's prayer. You know the Lord's prayer, don't you? Like there's a story about the 1985 Chicago Bears. Remember the Bears in 85 and Mike Ditka was the coach and Refrigerator Perry and uh, Jim McMahon were on that team? It, it, just before the 1985 Super Bowl, uh, 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 Mike Ditka asked uh, Refrigerator Perry, that really big, big lineman, to pray the Lord's Prayer uh, before the game, before they went out to play. And Jim McMahon looked at their offensive coordinator and he says, I'll bet you 50 bucks he doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. I'll bet you 50 bucks right now he doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. And the offensive line coach took him up on the, on the offer. He took him up on the bet. And so uh, Ditka looked at, at Fridge and he said, do you know the Lord's Prayer? And he says, I do. And so uh, he said, all right, everybody bow. Fridge is going to pray the Lord's Prayer. And he says, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And McMahon looked at the offensive coordinator and he picked up 50 bucks out of his pocket and he gave it to him. He said, I could have sworn he didn't know the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> yeah, you see, now you get it. Slow on the uptake this morning, that's all right. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Then what? Thy kingdom come. That's our job as believers, to bring the kingdom. So any time that you stick it out through a difficult marriage, you're bringing the kingdom here and now. Any time you do your work with excellence, you're bringing the kingdom here and now. Anytime you get together with your life group and love on each other and pray for one another and bring life in your community, you're bringing the kingdom now. Anytime you kneel before our Father in heaven and say, this is your kingdom, you're bringing the kingdom here and now. This isn't about a moral code. It's not about jumping through hoops. It's simply about saying, you created it perfect. I messed it up. I've been living here, but I want this back. And so every day, I want to bring the kingdom whenever, however I can. That's our job as believers. For those of you who don't know Jesus and have never said yes to Jesus, just for the sake of clarity, Jesus did not come to establish a new moral code so that you could check all the boxes and be sure that you lived up to his standard. Jesus did not come to teach you a little prayer to pray like abracadabra and you say the magic words and then you know for sure when you're asked three questions when you die, then you get to get into heaven. That's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to restore the kingdom of God and it begins with a complete personal redemption for you. It begins with complete personal restoration for you. 
from the very core of who you are, from your soul, your will, your volition, your, your deepest held values, then into your thoughts and emotions and even into your body, Jesus will and is restoring those things to the way that God intended it. The kingdom of God is not out there somewhere or coming someday. This is the gospel message. The kingdom of God is right here, right now. The kingdom of God is available to you right here and right now. Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus is talking about the coming of the kingdom. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is eminent. The kingdom of God is accessible. The kingdom of God is right here, right now. That complete personal redemption, that complete personal transformation can begin right here. When we bow the knee to Jesus and say, my identity's fractured, I'm at war with myself, I acknowledge that you are king, and I invite you, Jesus, to begin that kingdom restoration process in me and work it out through me in the corporate kingdoms that I'm a part of. It's simply saying to Jesus, for those of you who've never said yes to him, I, I agree that I've broken my personal identity and I know that you went to the cross and rose again on the third day. You are risen to new life, and now you are resurrecting life within me. You are restoring me. You are redeeming me. And you've demonstrated the power to restore and redeem me completely when you rose from the dead. That's, that's what saying yes to Jesus is. It's, again, it's not about a moral code. It's not about praying and prayer. It's not about any of those things. It's, invi it's about inviting him to do his kingdom work inside of you and restore your personal identity completely and then live out his kingdom mission on the earth. I'd invite you to pray with me. You know, I told you at the beginning of our time together that, um, you know, I just sensed that there's some folks in the place that would love to say yes to Jesus for the first time, that would love to accept that free gift of eternal life, that would love to say, you know, okay, Jesus, I, I want you to begin your kingdom work in me. I, I want you to begin that complete personal restoration. And I'm gonna invite you to tell him that right now. Remember, this isn't just kind of praying a prayer so you can check a box, but it's an invitation that Jesus would restore you completely and heal those fractured places of your personal kingdom, of your personal identity, and begin to do his work in you. You certainly don't have to use the words I'm gonna use, but a, a prayer like that just goes something like this. You know, Jesus, I recognize that you're king and you're God. I recognize that I've rejected your kingdom. I recognize that you put me together just how you wanted me perfectly and I kind of hijacked the dominion that you gave me and put it to use for myself 
instead of worshiping you, instead of living for your kingdom, God, I put it to use for myself. And that's resulted in in an identity that's fractured. I, I have a war going on within me. And so today, oh Jesus, I accept your free gift of eternal life. I confess my sin. I confess my fractured identity. I confess the ways that I've rejected your kingdom. I accept the free gift of eternal life and I say yes to you and I invite you this day, right now, to begin that complete personal restoration. I don't want to wait. God, I don't want to wait because I want to see that kingdom restoration, that redemption go on in me and begin right now. Just with heads bowed, if you would, and eyes closed, I would ask uh, for some of you who maybe prayed that prayer for the first time today, if you would just, nobody looking around, just take a step of boldness and a step of courage. Would you just slip your hand up for me? If you prayed that prayer for the very first time today and you invited Jesus to begin that work of kingdom restoration and you just slip your hand up, I know it takes a lot of courage. Great, great, thanks. So Jesus, now those of us who know you, those of us who walk with you, those of us who call you our friend and our savior, our redeemer, most importantly call you our king. invite you, oh now, oh God, to draw us near, restore and redeem. Continue that process that you started, that good work that you started in us. Continue it today until one day when you return and it's complete. We confess our need for you as we sing this next song. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said, amen. Let's stand together and sing in response.